Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions in life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. My guest today is Eleni Neville. Um, She is a couples counsellor and psychotherapist uh, with a special interest in relationships, um, and she works with people of any sexuality. Uh, She's also a sexual lecturer, sessional, my bad, (laughs) sessional lecturer of counselling, teaching both bachelor's and master's level students. Eleni, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's really, really lovely to meet you. And we're going to chat about commitment um, and fear of commitment specifically Mm -hmm. um, in today's episode. But before we get onto that, Mm -hmm. um, let's get to know you a little bit. Um, We have a segment called Get to Know Eleni Neville or Have You Met Eleni Neville? Um, and I'm just going to throw some questions at you okay. and uh, all you have to do is answer them mm-hmm. uh, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Don't have to think too hard. Are you ready? I think so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, so what is your favourite book? Okay, favourite book. Uh, look, I'd have to say Mating in Captivity by mm-hmm. Esther Perel. Mm-hmm. I really love how it explores the paradoxical nature of committed relationships, which pretty much highlights uh, the need for dependency and security, as well as the um, opposite need of freedom and autonomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a pretty good one. Esther Perel is quite famous, I guess, in the relationship science um, field. Um, What about your favourite movie? Look, I'd say one of my favourite movies, which I've watched a couple of times now, is The Dressmaker. Oh, yeah. An Australian comedy drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was made around 2015. And yeah, I found I really loved it. It was very colourful, very eccentric and um, some great actors in it, like Kate Winslet. Yeah, I remember that movie when it came out and there was a... um, exhibition with all the dresses from it as well oh, it's so that. fantastic um but yeah uh, what about um your favorite podcast or a podcast that you might be listening to right now i've got to say my time is so tight that i have not uh had a chance to listen to many podcasts right. uh, recently right uh invisibilia would have to be one that i've listened to previously mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. invisibilia uh what is invisibilia about i guess for I suppose it's kind of speaking to different topics uh, that highlight what's hidden. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been quite a few, a good year or two since I've listened to one, so I'm a little bit, uh, yeah. Out of it for a second, maybe time to jump back into it. Um, What is a famous role model in your life, or who is, rather? Look, speaking of famous people, and as already mentioned in the book choice, like Esther Perel. Mm-hmm. You know, has been an inspiration, in, given that I'm in the same field. I really appreciate her speaking to the relationship space in a, quite a unique and challenging way, a little bit more daring, a little bit outside of uh, convention. Mm. So, yeah, I really have appreciated mm. her guiding the space in that uh, more uh, courageous way. Yeah, for sure. Um, and what about the last course you completed? The last course uh, was a Master's in Social Work, which I think I completed around five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. We have gotten to know you. <laughs> You're known now. Um, but we might move on, I guess, um, to our interview segment okay. um, where we chat about our topic. Um, just to start off, 
really broad. Mm-hmm. What is a relationship? How would you describe a relationship? <laughs> okay, it's a simple question, but a big answer. But I'll try and keep it kind of uh, brief because if we're talking relationship generally, I suppose we're talking about uh, any kind of uh, form that involves something that speaks to either connection or association or some kind of involvement. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can have family relationships, relationships with friends, colleagues, and uh the interest in one, which of course is committed relationships. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure, for sure. And in your opinion, um, does a romantic relationship, because that's what we tend to focus on mm-hmm. on the show, um, does it hold the same meaning and structure and importance that is, as it did maybe a decade ago? Or decades, I yeah. should say. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly been uh, quite rapid changes in mm-hmm. decades. Uh, you know, like I suppose the whole notion of romantic relationships or the concept of a romantic relationship is something that is relatively modern. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no such thing as uh, finding a partner with a romantic uh, flavour to the attraction because it was based more on, uh, um, you know, monetary, financial, sort of economic connections. Mm-hmm. But that's going back to like 18th century. It wasn't until the 19th century, I suppose, where you know, the idea of dating started to emerge. Like in the 1920s, dating was uh, more of a thing like that people um, aspire to. Uh, And back then, actually, interestingly enough, there was an expectation that in a heterosexual context that men would pay for the date in, in itself. And then we kind of moved to... I suppose moved away from a more formal structured context such as courtship versus Mm -hmm. dating, which had a little bit more of a a less restrictive kind of element. Uh, But certainly falling in love and um, having romantic relationships, if you go back to the 1950s where there's a sense of commitment and being steady and even the 1950s, at least from an American context where, again, in a heterosexual context, uh, a boyfriend might offer the girlfriend a piece of his clothing or a ring or Mm -hmm. something that was symbolic of that kind of uh, uh, steadiness or commitment. Uh, And, you know, when we kind of move on to, you know, we go into the 1960s where we, of course, um, move into more sexual expression and freedom, which in itself is associated with the pill, with the backdrop of protests of the Vietnam War, um, and general sexual expression being uh, being more permitted, and certainly in, in some kind of circles, and 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 it continues. You know, we go into the modern era where, of course, the uh, inevitability of dating, romance, and technology, which has become the thing since the uh, emerging reality of the um, of the internet. Then we moved into that period of uh, dating websites, and so there's a very intimate relationship between meeting. Uh, choosing opportunities and technology it's all interrelated Uh, and certainly might be worth commenting on you know the period of uh, millennials where there is more focus or there's been increasing focus on uh, individualization uh, a generation that's given permission I suppose to focus on selves you know part of the selfie kind of uh, period of time and within that I suppose there's been that that's been extended to, uh, you know, the casual culture of hooking up, maybe friends with benefits. So dating and the structure and meaning has really become more fluid and more uh, postmodern, I suppose. Mm, yeah. yeah, and I guess in that context, do you feel like commitment perhaps isn't prioritised as much? Or Yeah, uh, well, uh, you know, commitment, I suppose, is also related to 
people's developmental sort of stages and ages mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in terms of is commitment a priority? Is that what I yeah. want to be doing with myself at this point? Uh, I wouldn't say as a general rule that it's not prioritised as much, but right. certainly I would suggest that with so many opportunities of exploration, mm-hmm. uh people may be inclined to uh, explore and actually uh, connect to those opportunities and connect to that, at least from a curious point of view. But my sense is that commitment is still important as people do, uh, generally speaking, uh, yeah, lean towards um, otherness, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it varies. I don't think we can sort of say it is or it isn't. Yeah. 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 So it's... Well, I guess before we talk more about that, what exactly is commitment? How would you define commitment in relationships? Yeah. (laughs) None of these questions have simple answers. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, And I suppose, you know, if we're kind of thinking of a word that is connected to commitment, I suppose I would highlight intentionality Mm -hmm. and the intentionality of maintaining a relationship over time. And often, unless you're very explicit about a casual encounter or some of those more, um, you know, modern concepts such as um, hookups or friends with benefits and so forth, which is quite different. Uh, But I suppose that kind of idea of uh, commitment is very much about uh, connecting with somebody for a journey to be had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Is being friends with benefits kind of a commitment in and of itself? Well, it's a particular contract, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So, I mean, that's quite fluid in itself Mm. and certainly um, I wouldn't say it's the same for everybody, but it's certainly an emerging trend that has that's part of a discourse almost in the Mm -hmm. context of uh, relationships or what kind of relationships are possible in terms of that exploration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, For sure. Um, How does commitment affect romantic relationships? Well, I suppose like uh, anything, it has uh, positive associations and maybe some struggles are connected to it. Mm -hmm. If I think of the positive associations, you know, commitment can help people feel uh, you know, that sense of otherness, that someone's mm. got their back, that sense mm. of security, predictability, yeah. uh, pleasure, you know, accessibility, proximity, you know, mm-hmm. that idea it's linked to kind of attachment, which I'll speak to um, at some point. Uh, but certainly on that positive level, there's that sense of, uh, you know, security and uh, comfort that mm. comes with commitment in that mm. predictability sort of sense. Mm. In terms of how it affects... Um, relationships with the associated struggles sometimes commitment can bring uh, conflict or tensions or longings Mm -hmm. uh, because and and I suppose what that speaks to is that typically one person's version or definition or frame of commitment is not always the same as the other and it may not be obvious from the very beginning because Mm -hmm. in the beginning that you know the the connection the that phase one or beginning stage of meeting somebody it feels like everybody's on the same page a lot of the time but often as time goes on people's differences seem to show up and their approach to commitment and approach to romantic relationships are not always aligned which in itself can bring some of those tension points and trying to work with those differences that show up as the relationship unfolds right right and so i guess like the definition of commitment is incredibly complicated and very hard to kind of condense into one or one or two phrases Mm -hmm. um what then does fear of commitment look like like Mm. what are we perhaps looking at it wrongly i feel like 
we generally have an idea of what a commitment issue looks mm, like mm. but what exactly how would you define it as a as a relationship counselor a couple counselor in terms of fear of commitment yeah yeah yeah, yeah i suppose so fear is an appropriate word the other word that is related to that is anxiety over commitment that's mm-hmm. a word that comes up often in my practice mm-hmm. so people don't necessarily use uh, the word fear or the primary emotion of fear though it can come up of course but in mm-hmm. terms of i'm feeling anxious about yeah. this or that uh, and i suppose uh you know when we're talking about fears or anxieties we are essentially talking through an attachment frame an attachment Mm -hmm. um, theory sort of frame which uh, speaks to well attachment in itself is a theory that developed uh, by a psychoanalyst uh, John Bowlby he's the founder and father of attachment theory and it was then developed down the track and I suppose attachment very simply speaking refers to how individuals were responded to by their own caregivers when they were first born or how they were sort of raised. And that in itself in some ways sets the template in how people when they become adults and they start to explore committed relationships, often some of those templates show up in the form of anxiety and that anxiety shows up particularly in anxiety associated with closeness and distance. Right. And again, typically couples that end up together, one often has a need for closeness Mm -hmm. and the other one has a bit more of a need for distance, which speaks equally to the anxiety of commitment. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. So it's kind of different attachment styles Mm -hmm. which affect, oh, my God. I'm struggling to explain myself too. <laughs> uh, different commi- different attachment styles can affect um, the level of commitment, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, well, the experience, the, right of commitment. the experience so, of commitment. So maybe if I can just elaborate a little bit further. Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, when we're talking about attachment styles, uh, the three primary attachment styles are what we refer to as secure attachment. And then we have uh, insecure attachment, and there's two strands in that. One is what we call anxious attachment, and the other one is called avoidant or dismissive attachment. Right, right. And secure attachment is the ideal one where, generally speaking, uh, carers responded with some kind of consistency and predictability Mm -hmm. to the child's needs, whether it was for um, comfort or warmth or hunger Mm -hmm. and so forth. So that child learns over time that uh, their needs are important and that their carers will respond Uh, uh, consistently which lets that little baby which finally grows up to be an adult uh, that their needs are important and it's okay to ask their needs without any uh, anxiety around that so they people that come from uh, secure attachment do pretty well in relationships right and I rarely see them in my therapy room (laughs) yeah yeah as you can um, imagine yeah but most of the population don't want to put a figure on it but the literature seems to suggest somewhere like 60 percent or so Mm -hmm. seem to fall into the category of insecure attachment whether that's anxious or avoidant Mm -hmm. and so anxious attachment reflects the kind of caregiver generally speaking that was sometimes available and sometimes not in terms of accessibility and you know it might be a preoccupied parent um, really busy with life or maybe mental health issues or uh, medical issues in the family or where siblings might have been uh, more focused on whatever the reason there's some kind of inconsistency compared to secure attachment so that kind of care is available, care is not available, I'm not quite sure, often leave uh, children particularly showing up in the adult world of relationships with a sense of an unsureness 
Mm-hmm. Am I lovable? Am I yeah. worthy? So it can kind of create a little bit of a sense of clinginess or just needing that extra bit of reassurance. Mm-hmm. And that can then in itself sort of play out in terms of how they approach uh, relationships and, and, a, and a bid or protest for more closeness. Right. But often it comes from that original template where then the expression and the need for that closeness can feel uh, quite overwhelming to the other person, particularly if they come from avoidance attachment, Mm -hmm. where emotions and that kind of intensity and uh, passion Mm -hmm. is not something that they typically would have grown up with. Right, yeah. So just to, uh, I suppose, to balance it out, uh, that attachment style of dismissive attachment uh, speaks to, very generally speaking, the kind of carer which maybe did not put so much emphasis on vulnerability and emotions Mm. and uh, often external things are focused on, whether it's successes, whether it's around Mm. sport or academic achievement, uh, some some level of discomfort or uh, invisibility when it comes to matters of the heart or being able to hold space for vulnerability. So then those two attachment styles often end up together and they're playing a little bit of ping pong, trying to find closeness and trying to create distance. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess in that case, it occurs, you know, down to attachment styles. Is that kind of the only route for fear of commitment, would you say? Or are there other causes? Yeah. Look, from experience or anecdotal evidence in the therapy room, it constantly shows up. There's a real consistency there. It's quite difficult to think outside of it. Mm -hmm. However, you know, so though attachment is the, the... template or the filter that I look through, uh, it's, again, it's more complicated than that because attachment, though we're using the same template, in itself is connected to how our brains are structured uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the the what happens to our, the structure of our brains when it comes to those different sort of attachment styles. And, mm-hmm. and again, it's connected to our belief systems, what we think about ourselves and how we relate to ourselves in relation to other. Mm-hmm. Life experiences beyond Mm -hmm. the family of origin beginnings, of course, play a big part when people have had difficult experiences or if people have experienced life traumas, uh, that in itself uh, absolutely influences uh, their approach and response to relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, certainly uh, different factors. And then you have kind of, I suppose, uh, cross-cultural influences, uh, temperament, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not all attachment, but I would be lying if I was to say that attachment does not have uh, significant influence, certainly mm-hmm. from the way that I've been trained and what I see in the room showing up each and every time becomes almost quite predictable. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I feel like a lot of those things can stem from those like insecure attachment styles as well when, yes, you, when well, you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to always lead to the same kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, different people work with different filters and different training backgrounds, but I can only speak to what makes sense to me theoretically and yeah. certainly the way it shows up in practice. Yeah, for sure, for sure. How can we tell that we have a fear of commitment? Mm. So It's not always obvious mm-hmm. and it's usually rarely obvious in mm. the very beginning. Right. I mean, people can certainly rely on their previous relationships mm-hmm. to assess patterns or uh, experiences of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Often it's useful when people come into the therapy room uh, I'll, I'll often ask uh, in reference to previous breakups whether um, of committed relationships, 
and try and establish what were the patterns, what showed up in terms of the anxieties or the issues that showed up because mm-hmm. of these patterns typically carry on into the next partner. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of how you can tell, in the beginning, everybody's intentionality, as I highlighted earlier, if you are aiming for a committed relationship, is, uh, is obvious, it's quite strong. And in that early stages, in some ways in those early stages, uh, a couple's differences is almost suppressed Mm. because there is that need to actually develop that feeling of secure attachment. When someone's got your back, you know, you you end up in that little bubble sort of stage. It's like Mm. a uh, symbiotic kind of connection. And the purpose of that is is not only to create that bond and that uh, connection, but its aim is actually... uh, down the track when some of the differences show up and some of the tensions show up that you have a little bit of a soft landing in the background because you have spent that extra kind of time. So in the early stages, I would say that fear of commitment is not explicit. Mm. If anything, it feels for a lot of people like the perfect match. Uh, Everything feels like it flows. Mm -hmm. Everybody's open and understandable and vulnerable and and deep. You Mm -hmm. you often hear about those early stages. But then as the relationship actually develops into a more committed context, mm-hmm. uh, those patterns that I refer to that relates to our attachment patterns tend to show up where one person is seeking more proximity and they can become more <clears throat> vocal about that and the other person might start showing uh, behavioural signs of needing to distance. Right, And right. so I suppose that that's the beginning signs in terms of how people uh, function in their cycle, their cycle of interaction, and usually we actually refer to a pattern which is one of the most common patterns which is referred to as one person being the pursuer, mm-hmm. which is the anxiously attached person, and the other person being the distancer, which is the... Um, avoidant attached person. Right. So that's kind yeah. of the, the signals, the signs which show up as the relationship becomes more committed. Right. Yeah. And what about before the relationship even begins? Like yeah. perhaps if they are kind of in that stage where they're seeking a relationship mm-hmm. or maybe not even doing so at all, is mm-hmm. there a way to tell that there's a fear of commitment? Yeah. Look, it, it can play out in friendships mm-hmm. as well, even before seeking or, or been interested in romantic relationships, it's probably not as obvious. Mm. And because in relationships uh, there's more at stake, mm-hmm. uh, that's when it tends to show up. I've even had clients, one particular person I'm remembering that would say, I don't get it. Like when, when I'm single, I feel so confident in myself. I'm mm. so uh, out in the world and I feel so present, you know, and feel so ready and able to be in a committed relationship with that kind of confidence and assertion. But then when I find myself in a relationship, uh, I fall apart. All these insecurities come up, all these anxieties show up in a way that's unrecognisable compared to being a single person. So it almost requires sometimes the relationship when there's more at stake to actually activate some of those unconscious anxieties which Mm. often speak to those attachment templates. Right, right. Yeah, Mm. that makes sense. Um, What about how can you tell... How can you see the signs in your partner mm-hmm. if they have a fear of commitment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so <clears throat> in your partner, okay. Usually the fears of commitment and the anxi- associated anxieties typically show up in what we refer to as cycles of interaction. Right. Okay, which is a particular pattern. So when, for example, a couple are um, interacting mm-hmm. and a trigger happens for one or the other, mm-hmm. And one per, typically couples or one part of the couple will respond to a trigger in a defensive, reactive kind of way. 
for example, or, you know, someone might be on their phone for lengthy periods of time. The other person, let's say more typically someone that comes from anxious attachment might experience that as not being prioritized, not being special, not being focused on, and that becomes a trigger. And then that person may react in criticism, accusation, and so forth. Right. The other person that was on the phone uh-huh. may shut down, let's say that's the partner, either ignore the person, walk away, change the topic, become very defensive. Mm-hmm. So suppose that's kind of a sign in the cycle pattern that is speaks to something of uh, a defensive response. So that mm-hmm. both people are defending. And I suppose one person that is protesting for more attention and the other person which is distancing for more protection. Yeah. They're both in protective modes, but I suppose they're the signs of that speaks to something of a fear of commitment. Right. Or right. fear of what might happen if the distancer engages and for the one that's pursuing, uh, kind of it's almost like that. Uh, fear of abandonment, that fear yeah. of being left, and it plays out in that cycle. And they both are kind of, they both have a position in the cycle, but the cycle mm-hmm. then ends up in a spiral, and the cycle itself becomes the relationship, and it ceases right. to be about what the needs are, where the vulnerable vulnerabilities are, which typically sit underneath the defences. Right. Yeah. So, would you say maybe conflict is kind of one of the yeah, easiest that's a simple places? Way to say it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, conflict, one hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. Um, do does fear of commitment and and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but mm-hmm. does fear of commitment go hand on hand with other problems as well? Mm-hmm. Well, look, if there is a fear of commitment, there may be a tendency to avoid relationships. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I suppose if you avoid relationships, that works for some people. You mm-hmm. know, everybody's different. Everyone mm-hmm. has different needs. And also different needs at different times of their life in right. terms of what, what they're requiring. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of fear of commitment, how can that be problematic? If you're avoiding relationships because it all feels too hard or uh, it's fatiguing, uh, you know, there's that sense of uh, needing a break or helplessness and so forth, that can be quite isolating for some people. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, spending more time on their own, I mean, they might spend time with friends, but in terms of uh, having that kind of uh, emotional bond or physical bond and so forth. So Mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, in terms of risk, potential isolation, potential loneliness, and also uh, reinforcing that self-doubting part of self. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess, does it... Does, does a fear of commitment, and uh, this is probably what your entire career is about, but does a fear of commitment mean that the relationship is doomed? Absolutely not. Okay. So yeah. I don't know if I could be in this work if, if, <laughs> if the end result is doom and gloom. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I mean, the interesting thing in terms of how the psyche works or how the unconscious works, mm-hmm. in actual fact, from a theoretical point of view and the way it shows up in practice, it's almost like the unconscious and the associated attachment styles are actually looking for the potential healing in an adult relationship. Mm-hmm. So we come from where we come from, which create a particular shape and a particular level of anxiety connected to commitment and relationships. Mm-hmm. And typically, an anxiously attached person will attract a um, avoidant attached person. So gotcha. you would kind of think, why would that even happen? Because it's like a um, setup for disaster, really. Yeah. But the unconscious has something else in mind. And the way it tends to show up 
is like the the unconscious, those parts that we're not even necessarily aware of, such as our attachment shaping, mm-hmm. is trying to find opportunities, a container to heal and create what is referred to as a corrective experience. Right. So once couples get through the conflict, the defences, hopefully they end up in couples therapy or they might read a few books or do something to attend to the the conflict that's showing up because nobody likes that. Mm-hmm. And in that exploration, once each person is more aware of each other's styles, mm-hmm. in itself, in it, it can create a depersonalizing. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it's no longer about you don't love me or you're abandoning me, and it's no longer about um, you're criticizing me because I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not worthy or you're rejecting me. Mm-hmm. It's about okay, so this is the shape that's influenced our anxieties around closeness mm-hmm. and the need for distance. How do we work with that? Yeah. And it's almost like an untangling process mm. and a relearning and a, uh, you know, a recreation of interacting on a, in a way that's not those typical defences, but mm. actually learning to access the vulnerability that sits underneath those defences, mm. where there's safety and there's potential of actually tolerating those discomforts of closeness and distance mm. and actually moving more towards secure attachment, which is very possible. And I've certainly seen it uh, with my own eyes, with um, not only my own experience of a couple relationship, but certainly with the many clients over the years. Right, yeah. yeah. So attachment styles, it is possible to move from an Very possible, insecure. especially with awareness and insight and often in the room actually one of the key interventions which comes often from the uh, modality of what we call emotion focus therapy where you will actually get the couple to turn to each other and bring some words or feelings into the space about what's really sitting there underneath and how they really feel mm-hmm. about the other. And it's almost like you're giving them a corrective experience in the therapy session so mm-hmm. they can get have that experience of each other beyond the defences. So you're opening up yeah. new synaptic connections, new new neural pathways. Right. You know, yeah. but it takes practice and once or twice doesn't do much mm-hmm. but if you're able to uh, repeat new ways of interacting mm-hmm. uh, while tolerating the discomfort that comes with that often it's safer when a therapist is witnessing the space but over time mm-hmm. uh, doing more and more of that at home to be able to heal some of those original wounds with each other yeah for sure and I mean in general any committed relationship takes work right you can't uh, expect it to just like anything else in life sometimes yeah. I kind of feel there's, there's a little bit of a myth or a, uh, an illusion in the way yeah. that relationships are depicted in social media and so mm-hmm. forth. So it kind of doesn't set people up for understanding like anything else, like career or mm-hmm. family or um, you know, travel experiences, whatever it might be that takes effort and uh, consistency and sort of feeding that, uh, that part of life to be able to give yourself a better chance, especially as it's all tangled in with neurology and attachment and mm-hmm. traumas and wound and pain. You know, it's impossible to... Uh, ignore it and actually have a wonderful relationship. It's not realistic. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I guess, you know, you've already talked about how to overcome a fear of commitment, but mm-hmm. is it is it something personal or is it something that a couple has to work on together? Look, the cliche, it takes two to tango, mm-hmm. does go a long way. Mm-hmm. It's not unusual, however, where one person is uh, the one that's more interested in actually doing the work. Right, yeah. Usually it's the one that comes from anxious attachment. <laughs> right, <laughs> Because yeah. there is that uh, deeper fear of abandonment. So there's mm-hmm. kind of like, I've got to work this out kind yeah. of thing. Um, but look, I see couples, they're my primary uh, client uh, cohort, 
And uh, there's, you know, I've certainly witnessed a willingness to be able to work on the relationship because people matter to each other and they want it to, uh, you know, be a different experience, especially as they know what the potential is from that initial symbiotic phase that I refer to. Mm -hmm. You know, there's often that nostalgia, like, yeah. you know, that that experience, that feeling, that knowing live space of the way we were. Mm. And even though it's not always easy to return to that phase because that's very intentional in terms of the journey itself, but actually um, there's often a willingness to uh, do it together. That personal work does not go astray because, of course, the more we're able to process mm. where we've come from and where we hurt and what sits in our bodies in yeah. relation to traumas and life experiences, that means that there's less likelihood of projecting some of that unprocessed material onto your partner. So yeah. there's room for personal work and certainly couple work is an accelerated process of those corrective experiences that I refer to. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I guess, do you kind of have any practices um, that either a person or a couple mm -hmm. can engage in to kind mm -hmm. of deal with um, commitment issues or even prevent the fear of commitment? Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, there's no one miracle, which there was, <laughs> uh, practice, but there's certainly various practices which I suppose are aimed at, if I had to kind of be succinct about it, I would say to calm down the nervous system right. and particularly the limbic system, which is where that part of our brain that uh, holds the fight, flight, freeze response when mm -hmm. there's a threat or perceived threat. Right. So if we can actually incorporate practices that help calm down that part of the nervous system, in itself, it moves us into a more flexible way of thinking and a more regulated state, which is our prefrontal cortex part of our brain, to be able to uh, see things more clearly for what they are. And I suppose some of those practices in terms of uh, uh, managing that part of the nervous system, there's uh, a whole lot of things from uh, breathing, which probably a lot of people know something about, uh, you know, deep breathing to be able to regulate the nervous system. Mm -hmm. There's one that uh, I often refer to where you breathe in for three, uh, through your nose, you hold for three, and then you gently release for three. Mm -hmm. Practice such as trying to, uh, I suppose, tolerate the discomfort of closeness or deepen that sense of connection. I'm not sure if you've heard of eye gazing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can have an exercise where you're literally looking at your partner's eye in that eye gazing way for maybe a minute or as much as can be tolerated, mm -hmm. where that in itself can both calm down the nervous system, but it can also deepen that sense of vulnerability. Right. So that's quite um, helpful. And certainly uh, the practice of trying to share what's underneath those defences. Mm -hmm. I feel really lonely as opposed to uh, you're always on your phone. Right. Sharing those yeah. vulnerabilities, yeah. Uh, connecting to those anxieties. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've been uh, married for 25 years. That's correct, yes. 20 when, years and five years. 20 years uh, and five years. Yet. Wow. Yeah. Still a very, very long yes, time. Yes, I'm, a, I'm a rare species these days. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, so I guess when we move on to our practice um, slash habit experiment mm, debrief, mm. I wanted to know, is there something that you do mm. um, to deal with fear of commitment, mm, if mm. that's ever been a problem for you at any point? Well, I personally have come as I've got to know my own material and my own templates as I've navigated the enormous journey of relationship and also 
than having children complicates things once mm-hmm. again. I have two children. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of what I've done over the years, apart from become a couples therapist, you know, to understand it theoretically at the very least and yeah. practice through other couples, but certainly couples therapy itself with my husband, with my mm-hmm. partner, mm-hmm. Uh, which I suppose started at the point of having children, which in some ways activates some of those unconscious attachment templates it's mm-hmm. almost like magnifies them so that's a yeah. good time often to go yeah or, um, so couples therapy where you're held by a, a professional practitioner where there's a sense of safety and holding to be able to navigate and untangle so that's been really helpful certainly some personal work mm-hmm. uh, to attend to I suppose that younger part of self Mm-hmm. You know, you often hear terms like the inner child or yeah. uh, the little girl or the little boy that sits within. So developing a relationship with that part, which can be possible through meditation or through, I've been part of a women's circle for over 10 years mm-hmm. uh, where, where there's uh, exercises and interventions to attend to the vulnerability that sits underneath, which has yeah. previously been projected out into relationships. So yeah. I would say like a, a, a breadth of different things from insight that comes from uh, reading or learning about what this is all about mm-hmm. to uh, personal therapy, to joint therapy and some of those exercises that I've referred to in terms of uh, connecting to vulnerabilities, learning to express that over time and uh, developing a more secure attachment experience with my partner. Right, right, right. So is there is there kind of one example of mm-hmm. something that you've done mm-hmm. or maybe something that you've recommended to clients one even? One thing that I would highlight, if I had to choose one, so this is probably the most difficult one, but mm-hmm. this is where the the potential of creating shifts Mm-hmm. in the relationship is and that is trying to access the tender vulnerability that sits underneath the pain which shows up defensively right so you know what does that look like so when you have a trigger or a moment and you're mm-hmm. perceiving the threat of not being seen or abandonment or whatever the attachment style brings up just to take a moment to pause pause has become mm-hmm. one of my favorite words mm-hmm. so in that pausing you know maybe actually leave the room if necessary to avoid um, more triggering just sometimes even putting your hand on your heart and having a moment to imagine yourself as a small person mm-hmm. and connecting to that uh, feeling of loneliness or that feeling of being invisible or whatever it might be. And from that place where you've had a bit of a relationship or at least a moment with that kind of tone or energy, bring that back to your partner if possible. This right. is what's happening for me. This is what happened in that moment when I reacted. Yeah, so It's kind of like, so suppose I'm speaking to... Uh, pausing and taking time to uh, connect to something much deeper inside, which typically mm. speaks to those younger wounds, uh, so that you can actually start to nurture that and and separate that from your partner because yeah. very much it's about that personal um, For underbelly. Sure. For sure. And I guess you know, pausing is a pretty important piece of advice yes. for any conflict. Absolutely, um, yes. Yeah, just taking some time to think about it. Um, what are kind of three good things? about pausing you would three say. good things about pausing okay well in itself it gives uh your nervous system or your limbic system to be more precise mm-hmm. time to calm down yeah because when that fight flight free system is activated that part of your brain is actually trying to support you mm-hmm. under the impression that there has been uh, there's a threat floating around even if it's a perceived threat mm-hmm. so by pausing it actually sends a signal to that part of the brain and says i actually don't need that much protection mm-hmm. thank you but no thank you right that yep. kind of thing so then that uh because literally that other part of the brain the prefrontal cortex is offline when your body is trying to help you survive 
apparently trying to help you survive. So when you're able to calm things down by pausing and maybe some breathing in that, it actually shuts off, which is exactly what you need. So it can open up your capacity for um, more regulation, more language, more flexible thinking uh, to be able to support you in seeing things more clearly and you've dropped out of that survival mode. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a really, like, it's really good to hear the kind of scientific perspective as to why that works so well. Because you often hear, you know, that advice for I can any kind of conflict re- yeah. resolution, yeah. let alone with um, just your partner. But it's nice to know that there's a, there's a science behind. There's it. something happening yeah. inside our inside our brains, and it's very real. Yeah, I think there's a book I can't remember exactly what it's called, but in the subtitle, something about getting to know your partner's brain. You yeah, know, it's, it's all about it's, right. It, it all shows up in the body and in the brain. So. Yeah. And, and neuroscience has exploded in the last decade or so in understanding uh, anxiety and commitment of relationships. But mm-hmm. when we put brains under a scan, we can actually see the difference uh, playing out when right. there has been uh, that change in the in the um, in the. In, on, on that sorry in that side of things yeah, yeah yeah for sure that's so cool um what are kind of i guess the challenges i mean in, instantly i can think yes. of one temperament yes is probably a big issue for mm-hmm. some people mm. but what what are what are kind of the challenges that uh, you maybe have personally come across but mm. also maybe you've seen clients yeah kind of had to deal with look i suppose change doesn't happen that easily mm-hmm. first of all like you know, habits are habits and the mm-hmm. reason they formed into habits because we've all had years and years and years and years of experience of it. You know, some of these habits have also formed from what was modelled to us growing up. Mm-hmm. So if our parents or caregivers were not able to model, uh, you know, conflict and then repairing, uh, like what we call rupture and repair, then that hasn't set you up. You don't have a particularly, your muscles are not built in that way to be able to go to that place. Yes. Uh, so to be able to draw new maps for yourself if the original maps that got passed down are not uh, resourceful enough then you know it's the challenge of drawing new maps you know and and the challenge of actually doing the opposite to what actually feels most natural Mm -hmm. if what feels most natural is to um, yell because you feel um, unseen for example in a couple relationship that might be the default position or the practice position, and that's maybe how you might have witnessed what happened at home with your parents as a couple. Yeah. But actually doing the opposite to what is just natural is hard and kind of like pushing against the grain to be able to open up a new way of doing things. Yeah. So discipline and uh, short-circuiting some of those tendencies and practice and practice because it does require repetition to literally prune back old synaptic connections and behaviors and actually bring in a new pathway where you actually respond differently. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And all, all of these things take time, time and effort. I mean, it's lots not of happen time. Instantly. I've had 25 years to, to practice. And, and as I say to often to couples, it takes a while to get to know the other person's internal landscape. You know, it doesn't happen in the first year or the second year. And typically the differences and the anxieties show up as the relationship continues. Right. So you yeah. would think by the time you get to your 10th year, it's all obvious, but it's not, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and I suppose keeping an open mind and assuming that you're going to go on a journey together. Mm. And in that journey, there will be challenges. And, and the hope is that together you can support each other in working through those challenges to recreate that special bond that was once formed. Right, for sure, for sure. Um, how often do you practice pausing? I mean, of yeah. course, this is something that yeah. comes up in conflict. Yes, yes. Um, 
So you don't really want to schedule conflict. I mean, I don't no, think that's the no, idea. No, no, of course not. But is there perhaps some kind of regular routine um, that... Yeah. Look, I yeah. think it, it might sound a bit cliche, but having do, do, practicing, I suppose, uh, areas of life such as uh, quiet time or meditation or yoga or well-being kind of... Uh, you know, supporting the nervous system to be regulated more often. So it doesn't have to be just practice in the moment of conflict. Right. It's more about kind of uh, participating in, uh, you know, different resources that are available to us mm -hmm. to practice that sense of calm, that sense of regulation. Mm -hmm. When a trigger comes up, you know, short circuiting that moment, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's through breathing or distracting yourself or if you're able to access your vulnerability, typically it takes a bit more time than, than that kind of moment. But if you're already massaging the nervous system to better regulate more often, that's actually uh, something that you can incorporate on a weekly level, let's say with a mm -hmm. yoga class or meditation every so often mm -hmm. uh, to be able to attend to that part of self. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And we've already kind of chatted about how this practice kind of affects your relationships and your perception in life. But I guess, can you spell that out again for some of our audiences? Like, how does it affect everything else outside of the relationship as well? Mm -hmm. Well, look, I suppose if you're in a relationship context, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. You're in a relationship context where this stuff plays out, yeah. how does it spill out into other areas? Yeah, yeah. 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 You, know, and I say, you know, like, it's like when we are in relationships, when those tensions show up, that reflect our attachment styles. So in some ways, the, the tensions are inevitable, particularly as we merge into more committed arenas. Okay, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not unusual just to highlight this, that a couple might be doing beautifully for five years and they're doing so well, they think, well, let's move in together. Yeah. Okay, so then they move in together, like literally in the first month or so. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly those attachment unconscious templates are kind of um, exacerbated. Yeah. It shocks people. Yeah. But it's like you've just then moved into that next level of commitment as represented by let's move in together or let's have a baby and, and so forth. Not to discourage that, but maybe to increase awareness that some of those hidden unconscious uh, parts of self will mm -hmm. wake up in a way in response to trying to heal. Yeah. Okay. So there's a good intention there, but the original um, eruption of it can be quite a shock and quite, can be quite confusing. Mm. But in terms of spilling out, if, if relationships are not in a good place, it is difficult to be uh, comfortable and happy in the world, isn't it? Because yeah. it is, uh, relationships represent survival. Yeah. You know, so, and, uh, and, and it's a biological need to connect and to have that kind of uh, sense of uh, tribe or sense of alignment, attunement. It's a very special experience, which is quite soothing and calming for the soul. I mean, you know, we're not talking about total dependency. We're talking about interdependency, but having your person. And when and when that's in a in disarray or it's not making sense or there's a lot of conflict, though people can compartmentalise that and be out in the world, mm -hmm. but often it can spill out whether it's mental health or uh, motivation to be in the world in other ways or um, sometimes people, if it's not working in the relationship, there can be a tendency to outsource intimacy elsewhere and I'm not only talking about infidelity which can happen but maybe they have a special friend a platonic friend where they talk th emotions and vulnerability because that's not possible in the relationship or yeah. that part has not yet been developed yeah so it shows up in all sorts of different areas as well as just the sense of uh, resting and not constantly being in that uh, tense uh, ruptured environment yeah, yeah for sure and you mentioned you know um kind of new challenges that will come up i think it's like important to recognize that especially in such a long 
you know, commitment mm. that might span 10 years or more, yeah. you're going to continue to be different people. You're not well, going to be the same Well, that's the thing person. we evolve, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, my 25-year-old self is mm. very different to my current self. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and thank God for that, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. But, of course, new challenges will arise. Mm. And when we develop, usually development comes with some kind of transition, some kind of uh, evolution, some kind of changes of values or perceptions and so forth. And we don't all, you know, those differences show up. And in relationships, there's an ongoing need to adjust and accommodate and work through and get to know the other person's uh, journey, their personal journey and what that means for the relationship. So it is uh, an ongoing, I suppose, uh, journey that you're sharing together. And the hope is as the differences show up and the changes show up, that you can continue supporting each other and working through the inevitable challenges that comes with commitment and comes with contextual stresses and comes with different needs as they evolve over time. Yeah. You know, dynamics also change because what was originally the unconscious contract or the rules of what something looked like, mm-hmm. then a new voice might emerge from one or the other. So then maybe new needs emerge, but that might not necessarily sit comfortably for the other person. Mm -hmm. So it's about kind of continuing to assess whether this relationship can accommodate growth and accommodate change in a way that's not work through conflict, but in a much Mm -hmm. more regulated and respectful way. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We've got some questions from our audience. Okay. um, And I'm going to throw them at you. Are you happy to take them? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So one is, is it a bad sign if one person wants to get married and the other is ambivalent? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't say it's a good or bad sign. I would say Mm -hmm. it is the situation. Right. So, and I have had that situation, you know, it's not uncommon in the therapy Mm -hmm. room where one person absolutely wants to get married and the other person sits in that ambivalence. Mm -hmm. And so when you've got two people, that's where the relationship is at that point. So at least in the therapy context, you would explore, uh, you know, the meaning, the vulnerability, the the context of what that represents for each person. And as I referred to earlier, each person has an internal landscape to try and understand that ambivalence, try and understand that need for marriage, try and understand each other and uh, work through all the nuances that come with that. So it's not good or bad, but it's actually, uh, it, it is requiring attention. Yeah, and I think when you mentioned uh, kind of towards the very start of the podcast that people have very different ideas of what commitment looks yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. It could just be that commitment is not Absolutely. Marriage. If someone's come from, this is just hypothetical, I'm not referring to any particular case, but if someone's come from... Uh, you know, a family where they, what was modeled to them around marriage was not a positive experience and had mm. quite negative impact, then there would be an understandable resistance in mm. jumping into the marital container. Right. You know, for example, I mean, there'd be a million different uh, variables that speak to marriage or not marriage, you know, uh, or ambivalence that sits with that. But to explore the 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 layers that come with each person's position is is absolutely where the work is yeah yeah i don't know if the person who asked that is going to be going to have an answer but i hope they'll have the strength at least and the understanding to deal with it it reflects where that relationship is in that very moment and both positions need to be put on the table respectfully and uh to balance out let's understand each person's position and what's possible here Mm -hmm. yeah Mm Um, is polyamory a sign that someone doesn't want to commit? Okay, yeah, I was wondering if polyamory was going to come up in this <laughs> yeah. discussion. So polyamory, certainly in my therapy space, is becoming, uh, well, more people are coming in with a polyamory uh, curiosity mm-hmm. or participation in itself. You know, it's it's it's, it's not a new discourse, but certainly uh, it's showing up as being a little bit more common 
from my experience. I'm not sure what other therapists are experiencing. Uh, so the question is, is it a sign that someone doesn't want to commit? Yeah. Look, the experiences that I've had around polyamory, that the couple itself remains to be the central couple mm-hmm. in terms of the couple of commitment. And polyamory typically is when two people... Uh, uh, choosing to open up the relationship to explore beyond the central couple, though the central couple continues to be the commit committed mm. um, context. Uh, you know, like it's a complex uh, arena. Mm-hmm. Now, doesn't mean commitment. Doesn't it mean commitment? Every situation is different. Yeah, but. Typically, it does need to be uh, agreed upon by both parties because mm-hmm. not everybody's into it. Mm-hmm. If it is agreed upon, then maybe um, that's enough commitment. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, again, it, it, there's no black and white answer to that. Mm-hmm. But certainly commitment still speaks to the centrality of the original couple before other people come in. And often with polyamory, there's very uh, specific rules and boundaries in participating in that particular world, mm-hmm. uh, such as, um, you know, maybe going home together in terms of the original sort of couple, yeah. what is, what's allowed, what's not allowed, how often, what does it look mm-hmm. like, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very uh, rich uh, contract and a very tender and sensitive contract mm-hmm. that two people need to be fairly robust and um, to be able to navigate through all the complexities mm-hmm. that come with that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, that consent to opening your relationship and kind of the effort it takes to create those boundaries and yes. contract is kind of a sign that there's a commitment already. In well, and of absolutely, absolutely. Some people, yeah. uh, you know, have had great success at it mm. and then other people bump up against the complexities. But if yeah. the cycle of interaction that I referred to earlier is uh, more in the positive rather than the negative, mm-hmm. then the complexities that come with polyamory, like any other subject, can be dealt with without dysregulating and defending, but rather right. understanding each other's position from a more vulnerable place when issues arise. Right, right. Um, Is it enough to be together and not get married? Well, that's very personal, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, So for some people, it's absolutely enough. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, my understanding is uh, in five or eight years, I'm not sure the exact uh, details, but there's going to be more cohabiting couples without being married and even choosing not to have children. So Mm. the whole landscape is already changing in terms of what is going to be normative in the future. It's no longer going to be the traditional nuclear family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So is it enough? Absolutely yes for some, absolutely no for others. As you highlighted in that earlier question when it was marriage was definite for one, ambivalent for the other. And again, you have variables, uh, all sorts of reasons um, and yeah, what is and what isn't, but you know, again, there's no, you know, it's it's not it's not a fact. Yeah, you know, it's very personal, and everyone has different preferences and different needs and different values connected to that question. Yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. This is a really great one. Um, after you've set up a life on your own, how do you let someone in? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm sure that's a big that's yeah. a big question. Yeah, look, often I hear people, particularly of a, a bit maybe of an older age group, where that if they've been on their own for a while, or they're particularly set in their ways, or they like things in a very particular way, how do you let someone in? I mean, it's like yeah. a I suppose the question is, do you want to let someone in? Is there a yeah. part of you that wants to share some of your life? Mm. You know, and 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 if that is the case, how much of your life do you want to share? Mm-hmm. You know, so again, it becomes uh, a very personal preference in what that kind of looks like. 
Mm. And in terms of how do you let someone in when your life is already established, I think that's what that question yeah. is asking. If the desire is there to let someone in, you can take baby steps towards that and assess how tolerable that is, how willing you're able to move into that sharing kind of space. And as and as the relationship or the um, the way that it forms will, I suppose, uh, give you more confidence to create more space for another person or uh, your preference for what it's going to look like will show up over time. Right, yeah. right. What might those baby steps look like? Yeah, so I'm sure it's different it depends everyone, on the context. Yeah. It's a bit of a general question. So, you know, I suppose, um, you know, literally dating. Yeah. You know, like how do you let someone in if we are talking about a romantic relationship? I'm not sure of that question. I'm assuming he's talking to a romantic relationship. I would assume so as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, but also assessing where you sit in yourself, what shows up internally, what do you notice about yourself mm-hmm. when you're actually letting someone in? You know, does it bring up panic? Does it actually bring up a sense of leaning into that direction? So baby steps, I suppose, is uh, reflecting and being with self to get a sense of what's coming up for you. Right. You know, but certainly uh, starting opening that door whether you're jumping online or you're meeting through friends and you're starting to spend a little bit of time together uh, to get a a sense of the life that you have Mm -hmm. and the potential willingness of actually sharing some of that with someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, Final question, and I guess this is kind of linked to the one we discussed before. Mm -hmm. How do you know if you're ready to commit to a relationship? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I mean, it's a tricky sort of question. In some ways, you don't know until you know. Right. There yep. is that. Yeah. You know, in some ways, we can only hypothesize, ponder, assume to an yeah. extent. Yeah. Lived experience gives us something a little bit more real, mm-hmm. potentially. But I suppose if there's that part of you that is seeking, is uh, feeling energetically even, the need to uh, be connected to other, mm-hmm. you know, so I suppose that can be like a, an impulse an emotion, uh, you know, thinking about it a lot, you know, like how do you know? Like, I mean, you know, again, there's no obvious answer to that, but I suppose uh, getting a little bit closer to yourself to connect to, well, what are my needs in this very moment? Mm-hmm. What kind of energy, what kind of uh, vision or um, experience do I want to have with myself in relation to other? Mm-hmm. You know, so I suppose it's like a bit of a... Um, having an intimate relationship with yourself to get a bit closer to some of those needs and some of those impulses to be able to, you know, stay curious, not be judgmental about it and uh, assess if that actually is the need that's showing up over and over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Answer that question? I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess that brings us to the end of our questions mm-hmm. from the audience. To close out mm-hmm. um, the show, we do have an open mic section okay. where we allow you to talk about anything that you're passionate about and it could be related to the topic, but it doesn't have to be. Mm, okay. Um, and you wanted to talk about <clears throat> self-improvement. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, yeah. Um, so self-improvement or self-growth, I mean, that is definitely something that I've always been very passionate about from as, as early as I can kind of remember. There's always that idea of human potential mm. and what's possible. You know, and, and I am a big believer, I don't think I could be a therapist if I wasn't, yeah. in uh, 
you know the those that like we said before that uh, experience of evolving and changing and growing. I actually find it fascinating. Uh, all the different uh, parts of self that can be experienced, or all, all the different versions of yourself that you can, you can connect into, mm-hmm. and all the possibilities uh, of of how life can be. So yeah. that kind of sense of I suppose attending to those bits that aren't ideal or. or anything you may have been impacted from early life or, or life experience and actually uh, finding courage and resilience and, uh, you know, a deeper knowing that, you know, life can uh, be something that aligns much more to your deeper self, whether it's your spirituality mm-hmm. or your sense of um, potential. You know, mm-hmm. I find that very exciting and I love it even as I witness it in the therapy room where you really see evolution live evolution in moments in time it's a pretty special energy whether it's an aha moment or someone has connected to something deep that's been unhidden for a long time or or, or the links haven't been made it's quite a beautiful experience to uh, watch humans grow and as well as my own growth over the years which has reflected my own practices and my own um, drive and motivation to be in the world with that uh, self-growth filter yeah, for sure. What what exactly does self-growth look like to mm, you? Mm-hmm. So I suppose in some ways, I mean, we've talked a lot about the nervous system and regulating. Like I actually mm. do associate self-growth or maturing over time in being able to, what, what I, the term that's often used is differentiating. So kind of almost like uh, separating from some of the influences that potentially held you back and right. being able to kind of find your way, kind of come home in some sense, you know, like it sounds a bit cliche, but that sense of connecting back to your authentic self, mm. the person that you, the essence of who you are that may not have had an opportunity to flourish at different times in life, mm-hmm. but actually uh, connecting to all those parts in, 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 in all the movement that happens inside that reflects um, self-growth. Right. Is that kind of the same as kind of cutting out? I see a lot of kind of terminology, especially online and mm-hmm. also kind of um, in vernacular discussion with my friends mm-hmm. about like you're know, cutting out toxic parts of your life mm-hmm. or letting go of the things that don't serve yes, you. Yes, that's, that's kind quite of a the common, one yeah. common thing, isn't it? Well, you know, it, it, it can speak to that, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I suppose it's connecting increasingly to what matters to you, mm-hmm. what uh, values you sit with and that changes over time potentially uh, but I suppose it's kind of like in that authenticity connecting to uh, what's significant what's important what speaks to you what what helps you uh, stay alive and stay uh, uh, excited like in, in being in within yourself in the world you know sort of yeah. keeping that energy alive within self Right. Yeah. Right. And within that, cutting out what's toxic and what no longer serves you in itself is uh, connecting to uh, what's significant and what reflects, you know, your own alignment with yourself. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eleni. Thank you. Um, where can people find you online if they want to hear more about you? Uh, look, I suppose if you just type in my name, Eleni Neville, I'm connected to a couple of websites. I work in private practice. Uh, yeah, and so my name will take you to a few sort of websites where you can read my profile and eventually this podcast will be out there as well. Yeah, so, yeah, sure. my name will be enough to be able to connect people in. For sure, yeah. for sure. Um, thank you so much for joining. I've had such a wonderful time chatting to you today thank and I've learned so much great. as well. Thank you. It's been really um, fantastic. 
You've been listening to Reliscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found at re.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kuti. Thanks for tuning in.